Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So one of my all-time favorite novels is The Great Gatsby. I know it's cliche, but every time I've read it, and I've read it multiple times since high school, I've always found some new insight, some new symbolism that I hadn't seen before, and it's just a, just a fun, fun read. Anyways, when The Great Gatsby first came out, it was a complete critical and commercial failure, and it wasn't until after F. Scott Fitzgerald died that it started gaining the status of the great American novel, and it became required reading for high school English students. But I guess they want to figure out why that was, why it took so long for The Great Gatsby to become this sort of cultural touchstone in the United States. And then why the book still endures today, decades later, a book written about the 1920s Prohibition era America, why that story still resonates with us even in the 21st century. Our guest is Maureen Corrigan. She's a lecturer at Georgetown University. You've probably heard her on NPR's Fresh Air, where she's the resident book critic. And her book is called So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. And in this podcast, we're discussing all things Gatsby. So let's do this. Maureen Corrigan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Happy to be here. So your book is called So We Read On, which is a play on a line from my favorite book, The Great Gatsby. There have been dozens, you know, just lots of books written about this book, articles, essays, dissecting it. What angle are you taking with your book on The Gatsby? Yeah, um, I, certainly when I started thinking about writing a book about Gatsby, that was daunting to realize how much has been written about Fitzgerald. He's probably you know, the most chronicled American writer of all time, and just also how much has been written about The Great Gatsby, um, really daunting. My angle was um, to approach it as someone who has read the books by now 60 plus times, who's taught it, you know, almost all of my teaching life. So we're talking like 30 years and um, I've traveled the country lecturing about it for the Big Read program sponsored by the National Endowment from the Arts. Um, I wanted to talk about it as a, a passionate, informed reader and to try to figure out where the power of this novel comes from. And um, not really to talk about it in a scholarly way, although I wanted to use some, some criticism and some biographical study, but 
to really talk about it um, the way I talk about books on fresh air, as uh, which I do every week. You know, as, as someone who's really trying to get to the heart of well, what makes this book work or or doesn't, and um, why why is this book in in terms of Gatsby, which disappeared by the time Fitzgerald died in 1940. Why did it come back so quickly and why has it had this power over us uh, as as Americans ever since? Um, One of the things I I talk about is the fact that Gatsby is probably the American novel that unites us if we've gone to high school in America. Uh, Someone did a survey years ago and I didn't do an informal survey every year with freshman English classes at Georgetown where I teach. I say, well, what have you read? Have you read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? Have you read, um, you know, the, God, Huckleberry Finn, Moby Dick? Kids raise their hands. But when you say, have you read The Great Gatsby? Pretty much everybody in class raises their hand year after year. That's the one you can count on, that that's our unifying text. Well, so how did that happen? Because you talk about in the book that when The Great Gatsby first came out, it really wasn't well received by literary critics or the public. Um, so yeah. why why was it such a flop when it first came out? Yeah, uh, yeah, it comes out in 1925. Um, probably the most famous bad review was in the New York World, Joseph Pulitzer's paper, um, and the headline read Fitzgerald's latest, a dud. Gatsby was Fitzgerald's third novel. He he had such hopes for it. He thought it was going to outsell This Side of Paradise, his big hit of 1920, The Beautiful and Damned. And then it turns out, you know, not even to sell out its second printing. Um, just to give you a, a sense of what I'm talking about, when Fitzgerald dies in 1940, remaindered copies of that second printing that Scribner does in 1925, they're still in Scribner's warehouse moldering away. So it sold about 22,000 copies when it came out in 1925. Um, Fitzgerald never stopped torturing himself, trying to figure out why didn't it sell. And he had a lot of, um, you know, guesses. He thought, well, it's too short and people want more book for their book. Um, he, he never liked the title. He thought the title was terrible. Um, and then I think most interesting of all, he said, uh, I, in a letter to Maxwell Perkins, he said, I didn't create any favorable female characters and women drive the fiction market. And when I, I saw that letter, I really had a jolt because that's what we say today. Women yeah. drive the fiction market, men, you know, yeah. go for nonfiction. Um, I I also think that a lot of critics and book reviewers misread it as just a murder story. I mean, it was it was reviewed as a crime novel by a lot of the popular book reviewers. So I think they they didn't value it. They said, "Oh, here's this book about bootleggers and three violent deaths." And, you know, a character whose name even derives from gangster slang from the 1920s, a gat is a is a gun. So and I think they just sort of dismissed it as um, a, a crime novel. Well, I thought that was interesting because uh, you had a section in your book about this, because I think at least mm-hmm. before I read your this your analysis of it, um, I always saw I think most people do see Gatsby as sort of like this tragic 
love story and tragedy of uh, aspirations that aren't fulfilled. Um, but you make a case that it, it could also be viewed as one of the first hard-boiled noir novels in America. Yeah, I think it anticipates so much of what we later see in the, the great noir movies like Double Indemnity and Mildred Pierce. But also, you know, you think about Gatsby Fitzgerald's working on it from about 1922 through 25. And he's also, for a while, living in New York. I mean, he moves to New York in 1919, comes back in 1920, lives there for a few years. And this is the era when the hard-boiled de detective and crime story is really kind of taking shape in cities like New York and L.A., San Francisco. Um, Fitzgerald was a great admirer of Dashiell Hammett. All of these reading lists that Fitzgerald always made all of his life, he'd have all of these classics and Greek tragedies on these reading lists that he'd give to friends. And then he'd always have The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett. Um, he was great. He was a good friend of H.L. Mencken and the critic. And H.L. Mencken for a while edited the Black Mask magazine, which which carried some of these first noir stories. You think about the fact that, right, we've got all these criminal elements in Gatsby, not just Gatsby himself, but folks like Myra Wolfshine, who's modeled after Arnold Rothstein, the, the real life gangster who supposedly fixed the 1919 World Series, the Black Sox scandal. Um, we've, we've got pro bootlegging, prohibition, we've got all of that atmosphere, um, kind of loose morals. People are having affairs you know, and women are smoking and drinking. But it's also more than that. It's the fact that you've got this heavy element of fate in Gatsby. Um, Nick's narration is retrospective. When the book opens, Nick tells us that two years have gone by already and everybody's dead. Um, you know, Gatsby's dead. Uh, he's look. Nick is speaking to us present time in 1924, and he's looking back two years to the summer of 1922. There's that funny sort of um, feeling like you get in a noir movie like Sunset Boulevard, that everything that happens in this story is it's fixed. It can't be changed because you've got this voiceover, this narration by, in this case, Nick Carraway, who's looking backward and telling us what happened. Noir is fascinated with fate and fascinated with the fact that people can't change their fate. It's in some ways a very un-American form. And I think it's really interesting that, that Fitzgerald chose that kind of frame structure for Gatsby, which basically forecloses all possibilities. You know, I, I say that Gatsby is our, our greatest American and un-American novel at once because it, it celebrates this aspiration, as you said, this character who tries to be more, who reaches for the stars, but at the same time it tells us, eh, the game is all fixed. You know, it, it's over before it begins. And in fact, Gatsby is dead as of page two of the novel. We learn that. Well, it's, it's very Greek, you know, like, like a Greek tragedy, yeah. almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, what is, is that the appeal of the book? Is that what makes it, what Americans are, are so drawn to is that, yeah, you should shoot for your dreams, go for it, even though it might be impossible. It's just the striving yeah. that counts. Yeah. 
Is that what that's is, right. that, is that the draw to, of the book? The big that's its deepest draw. Uh, that's what Fitzgerald said the book was about. He he writes a letter um, when he's living on the Riviera and and finishing Gatsby in the summer of 1924. He writes a letter to a Princeton classmate, Ludlow Fowler, who was the best man at his wedding to Zelda in 1920, and he says to Fowler that that the the novel is about those illusions that give such color to the world that you don't even care whether they're true or not. To lose them would be like death. And he also talks about the fact that the book is about aspiration. So, yeah, it's about dreams. It's about illusions. It's about those enabling fictions that make life worthwhile. It's about striving, even though you know inevitably you're going to fall short. Um, I've listened to so many speeches, I, I feel like, during the Obama presidency, where it's almost like he's channeling Gatsby. He's made so many speeches where he's talked about, you know, this is our um, kind of almost like inheritance as Americans that we're, we're supposed to reach, we're supposed to strive, we're supposed to stretch our arms out, run faster, you know, try to be better. Even though we know inevitably we're going to die, we're going to fall short, it's all going to end. I think that's what the last line of Gatsby is about. So we beat on boats against the current, drawn back ceaselessly into the past. You want to you keep trying to row forward, but you are going to be drawn back ultimately into the past, into the great whatever, yeah. nothingness. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, let's talk about um, how Gatsby became the great American novel and the novel that high schoolers read. Um, so after Gatsby or after Fitzgerald died, there was sort of a renaissance. What caused that reinterest or that rekindling of interest in the great Gatsby? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Fitzgerald dies um, at the age of 44 in Hollywood, he's, he's working for Paramount. He's sort of working on different movies and really treated like a hand in Hollywood as so many of our great writers were. In fact, he works for two weeks on Gone with the Wind before he's pulled out of that movie. And he dies in 1940 in December of what's probably his third heart attack. Um, and when he dies, he can't even find Gatsby in bookstores. When he goes into bookstores yeah. in L.A., it was really sad. He bought his own works, you know. Yeah. You know, really, if I had one wish, <laughs> um, sometimes people ask me, "Well, what would you ask Fitzgerald?" And I say, "I wouldn't ask him anything. I would tell him, you did it. You did it. You wrote the great American novel. You know, you did it.' Because when he died, he thought he was a failure." Um, his well-placed literary friends, people like H.L. Mencken, Edmund Wilson, Dorothy Parker, his legendary editor, Maxwell Perkins at Scribner, they work really hard to try to get Fitzgerald's writing back before the public. So these different editions come out. And in fact, Edmund Wilson even sort of completes The Loves of the Last Tycoon, the novel that Fitzgerald's working on in Hollywood when he dies. But... What really gives Gatsby a boost is, is, is World War II. And it's a story I really didn't know about until I started researching my book. Um, during World War II, there was this effort by publishers, paper distributors, editors, authors, librarians to try to get books in, into the hands of soldiers and sailors overseas. And they come up with this idea for cheap 
pulp paperback editions of everything from, you know, the Odyssey to Margaret Mead's coming of age in Samoa to the latest Rex Stout mystery, Moby Dick. And Gatsby is chosen as one of the titles to be distributed, made into what are called these armed services editions. Um, in fact, I have a mock-up of one here, a sample. They look like this. Yeah, I have they some They were of rectangular because they a serviceman's pocket. You have some originals? Yeah, oh I got God, some originals. We, we actually um, we wrote an article about it a couple years ago. It's, a, it's such a fascinating you, Yeah, and there's a history. new book. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, anybody who cares about books, you kind of feel like, oh, yeah, books can make a difference. You know, they certainly made a difference to these guys in World War II. So here's Gatsby. You can't buy it in 1940. And then by 1945, there are there are 155,000 editions of The Great Gatsby distributed, you know, basically all over the world where American servicemen are. I've gotten a couple of letters, which have been amazing, from men who've told me that the first time they encountered Jay Gatsby, that's how one of these guys opened his letter, um, when they were serving in 1945. One guy said he was a power, paratrooper about to you know, be, be uh, thrown into occupied France, and, um, and that's when he encountered Gatsby. So shortly you know, after the war ends, then we get the paperback revolution. And Gatsby is one of the titles that's picked up right away by Bantam, by by all of you know Scribner's paperbacks. And in 1949, we get the second Great Gatsby movie, and this one stars Alan Ladd, who was known for playing criminals and and tough guys and you know cowboy loners like Shane, and he plays Jay Gatsby, and it's my favorite Gatsby movie uh, of the ones that exist because. It's not the it's not the novel either, but it's interesting because it really is is Gatsby as a, a film noir. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating. But finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made to measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. 
So we've been using factory meals in the K household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to, to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. It's very fascinating. So, I mean, what's the status of Gatsby today amongst academics? Um, because it has, during the past 70 years or so, it sort of became a darling amongst academics to analyze it in all, all sorts of yeah. ways. What is its status now? Is it sort of a still a littler, literary darling or do academics sort of like, yeah, it's kind of lowbrow? Or... Um, it, it's... it's... It's it's got this kind of strange schizophrenic reputation, you know. It's it's a great American novel. I don't think anybody disputes that. I mean, a few people dispute it, but they're idiots. It's <laughs> almost like it's Wonder Bread, you know. It's not sexy enough. It's not. Um, it, it it it's sort of seen as kind of. It's so familiar that I think again it's downgraded a bit when when i would tell colleagues in the english department at georgetown um that i was working on a book about the great gatsby i was like oh okay you know it, it's sort of like can't you find anything a little bit more off-road to work on you know um it's funny somebody pays, posted on facebook today 
uh, in honor of July 4th, all of these novelists and critics from other countries around the world giving their suggestions for the great American novel and for the novels that tell us something about America. And I've noticed that the list is interesting. Fitzgerald's on this number four, but as, as you know, our American author, but some people have put on the Pat Hobby stories or they put on this side of paradise. It's almost like there people are working to avoid mentioning Gatsby because it's like water. It's like air. It's so much with us that I think there's a little bit of a backlash against it in the scholarly world that it's just too familiar. Yeah. What, so you said you've read it 60 times. I've read, I've lost count the number of times I've read it, but what I love about the Gatsby is that it's one of those books, no matter how many times I read it, it still feels fresh and it doesn't get stale. And I always pick up some new insight or catch some new symbolism what what did Fitzgerald do to accomplish that, to give it, make it so fresh, even though you've read it 60 times? I'm going to give you an answer that's going to probably put you to sleep and everybody else listening to sleep, okay. but it's no. the language. Okay. You know, I notice when I say it to students, and I'm, or, or even on fresh air, when I'm trying to speak book strength, if you say, well, it's got this poetic language, you know, everybody, you can see the the ignition key turning off in students' brains, at least. And I feel like I can hear it around the country because poetic language sounds, um, you know, too highfalutin. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the language is so rich and it's funny. And Fitzgerald's writing like a real poet, you know, in, in Gatsby. Um, and he, it's condensed. You know, he, he said to Maxwell Perkins, his editor in 1922, that his third novel was going to be something different. And I'm, I'm quoting mostly from memory. He said, I want to write something intricate and beautiful and simple and, you know, heavily patterned. So he wanted all those things at once. You can read Gatsby like a simple crime story, like a simple love story. But then when when you start to reread it, as you've done, as I've done, and you become alert to those layers of meaning, it's just such a richer book. I mean, people have done, you know, they've toted up the symbols in Gatsby. There are 450 time words in Gatsby because it's a novel that's so aware of an ultimate deadline looming that Jay Gatsby is going to die by the end of this summer, you know, and that the party is going to be over. It's a novel that every chapter is organized around a party, starting with that opening dinner party at the Buchanan's and ending with the failed party in quotes of, of, of Gatsby's own funeral. I mean, he's got so, so many layers of symbols, but he's not hitting you over the head with them. They're integrate, integrated beautifully into the story. That's why I think as much as I love James Joyce and I love Dubliners and all of that, I always feel like um, Joyce and T.S. Eliot and those other modernists who Fitzgerald met and it admired and was influenced by, I feel like they're always nudging me in the ribs. Hey, here's another symbol, you know, look how clever I am. Not in Gatsby. He's He's got everything in there that every other great modernist writer has and the fragmented storyline and all, all of those other modernist tricks. But it's, it's not like he's 
constantly asking us to admire how clever he's being as a writer. It's, it is a masterpiece, an overused word, but not in this case. What I thought was fascinating, um, you know, one of the things I think it made it so great because he was constantly editing it. And even after the book was published, he was yeah. still editing The Great Gatsby. I know, it's crazy. I, I went to uh, Princeton where Fitzgerald's papers are, and I, I looked at his own edition of The Great Gatsby. And this is the first edition that comes out, first printing, and it's making changes. And, you know, to an ordinary reader who can't, I, I can't have access to what's going on in his brain, the changes are sort of inexplicable. Like he's changing the number of the regiment where supposedly Jay Gatsby yeah. served. Or, you know, it, it's like, why are you doing this? But he's such a perfectionist, he can't let it go. Um, I don't know. I love that about him. He, you know, it, it probably shortened his life, but I love that he couldn't let it go. Well, it, it's very, it's very like Gatsby, right? The striving, you know, even though if you're not going to obtain perfection, you still got to go for that's, it. That's right. That's right. And you know, Fitzgerald was raised Catholic as I was, and I, I keep sometimes when I, I've read his letters, I, I feel like I can hear that kind of Catholic influence. Our nuns used to tell us way back when they used to recite this jingle, good, better, best, never let it rest until your good is better and your better best. I feel like Fitzgerald had that planted in his brain too. You know, you can't let it go. You're never good enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love to get your thoughts on this because it's something that I've often wondered uh, since I've read The Gatsby and you are a, a book reviewer. One of the things I love about Gatsby is that it's both timeless, but yeah, at the same time, it perfectly describes, you know, jazz age, New York, yeah. captures a time. Yeah. Has there been a novel written in the past 20 years that does the same thing as Gatsby, where it's both timeless, but also perfectly captures our time? Boy, <laughs> I hate these questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you don't have an answer, you know, it's okay. But I, I just... <laughs> um, You know... You're not going to love my answer, but I think a lot of detective fiction does that still. Like because Lee detective, Childs yeah, Lee Child, Sarah Paretsky, I've mm -hmm. just read her latest, which is great. Um, I, 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 um, I love this new detective fiction writer, A.X. Ahmad, who has um, an Indian immigrant as his sort of amateur detective, who's a taxi cab driver in New York. It's a great series. They're not cute. The latest one is called The Caretaker. And it's, um, it, it, it's, you know, it's hard boiled. Um, I feel like when detective fiction is well written as, as these examples are, they're also linked to their time because they're investigating mostly social issues of the time. They have that double identity um, where they can sort of do that. Um, I'm trying to think of other people. <laughs> I mean, most of the writers who I, who are flooding into my brain um, are, are people who I think are aiming more for that timeless quality. Like my favorite novel so far this year um, is The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. And that's a fantasy novel. So he's unmoored from um, any particular time. It's hard to do, I, I think. Um, you know, long time, 1980s, of course, Tom Wolfe tried to do it. 
with Bonfire of the Vanities. He wanted to write this great Dickensian sort of novel about New York in the go-go 80s. But I don't think that novel has stood the test of time. I think um, it sort of was, was, people were reading it in the 80s and even into the 90s, but it, it's really not, I don't think regarded anymore as like this, this novel that can stand on its own. Dated. So yeah, I'm not coming up with with fabulous no, answers. I love for the you, detective novel thing. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah. I'm a big fan of detective novels. Um, so last yeah. question, um, you know, for our listeners who are listening, and they've it's been a while since they read Gatsby, and they're listening, they're like, well, maybe I should give it a second go. Do you have any suggestions yeah. on themes or motifs? or something they can do to make reading more interesting or getting more out of it second time or third time they read it? You know, I, first of all, I would recommend that they watch the Alan Ladd version. Okay. Cause it's, it's, it really foregrounds the crime element and the film noir element. And in that way, I, I think when people are, uh, have fallen out of love with Gatsby or never got Gatsby in the first place. It's because it's been hammered into their heads that this is a great American novel. This is a great, you know, and, and, um, you know, they approach it with almost too much reverence. I think listening to it is, is a fabulous idea. Um, when I, I went to Gats twice, the seven and a half hour off Broadway production where the actors, kind of had memorized Gatsby. So they, they did the entire novel in seven and a half hours. And that was that was when I really heard the humor in it. The first third of Gatsby is filled with jokes, with almost screwball comedy. That opening dinner party, uh, Daisy and, and Tom, they're jabbing at each other like Ricky and Lucy almost, you know. So I would try to be alert to the comedy. Um, you know, the, the hot reading now of Gatsby is the homoerotic reading that that Nick is in love with uh, Gatsby. And, it's, and, you know, that must be what's what's going on. Um, so, I, you know, I think maybe that if that freshens it up for people to think of that um, unrequited yearning, everybody in the novel is reaching out for somebody or something that's out of their reach so um, that's something to pay attention to. And, you know, I'm a big fan of looking at the water imagery, which sounds such an English teacher thing to say. But, the, you know, the novel is terrified of going under, people drowning, people going under. You know, um, it's, it's the great American fear that, that you know, you, you, you're reaching for the bars, but you're going to be pulled under by your desires, by the past, you know, it, and certainly by the end of this novel, pretty much everybody's underwater. And there's a class element to that, to that imagery as well. So those are some of the things I would maybe recommend doing, but if you can find a good um, audio version of the great Gatsby, I think listening to it would be fabulous. Fantastic. Well, Maureen Corgan, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. I could talk about Gatsby for hours. <laughs> Me too. Our guest today was Maureen Corrigan. She's the author of the book, So We Read On. You can find that on Amazon.com. And if you love The Gatsby, go get that book. You'll really enjoy the, the sort of the historical backdrop of how The Gatsby came to be and some of the insights that Maureen provides. And if you want to learn more about Maureen's work, you can find her at NPR.org, where you can find more of her uh, book critiques. 
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, you get something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is, use us to your podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Help get the word out. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.